the title, as I recall, referred to something called the liberal international order. Uh, this has become a totemic sort of phrase invested with religious significance in Washington and in academia. And ask me how I know that. Uh, because I lightly criticized it once about three years ago. And I brought out the fury of tenured professors all over the land and former deputy assistant secretaries and even undersecretaries were swearing at and about me on Twitter. And they still do. They're very angry that I questioned their God. Um, I, my point here, though, is to say I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try to explain what it is, where it comes from, and equate it with something that nobody else really ever talks about, which I will explain also, called the universal and homogenous state, not meant as a compliment. Um, the reason for doing so is that we, know, we sort of know who our enemies are, we know their names, we can recognize their faces. We need to remember that they have an idea that animates them. All successful movements that are a real threat to you have a theory of justice that they rely on, which makes them feel better about themselves. Um, Angelo mentioned the Melian Dialogue. I teach my students uh, chapters of Thucydides, and one of the things I try to explain to them is a non-trivial reason, not the only reason, but a non-trivial reason why Athens lost that war, as Thucydides tries to show us, is the frank amorality of its thesis sapped Athenian morale at home and robbed them of political support abroad. Once they go around saying to everybody, we're just going to kill you because we can, the people at home think, hmm, we're not fighting a just war anymore. And the people abroad who are their allies say, so you're saying that my alliance is essentially contracted with Don Corleone? I, I no longer feel so great about this. So it's important to have a theory of justice. So uh, where, what is the liberal international order? When people say that, what they mean is the sort of totality of institutions built in the wake of World War II, 1945. So they mean the UN, the WTO. Not all of these were immediately built, but they were all part of that structure. Uh, NATO, eventually things like the IMF, the EU, and so on. This is the liberal international order, sometimes called the rules-based international order. Now, it's initial, every once in a while, Europe uh, and other regions, but let's stick to Europe, blows itself up, and then when everybody's dead and or just tired, or they run out of ammunition, they stop and they have conferences and they say, let's cool it and come up with a new way to do this for a while. So this happens after uh, the Thirty Years' War, Westphalia, 1648, happens after the end of the Spanish War of Spanish Succession, happens at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And then it happens in 1945, and of course in 1914, too. The difference, it seems to me, between 1945 and these other cases is, unless I'm wrong, this is the first time that people getting together said, we're going to solve this problem forever. It's no longer a temporary solution meant to meet the exigencies of our time, but we're going to solve it for all time. There's a kind of hubris behind it. And I don't think they all thought that, but some of them did. And certainly by 2019, the, the adherents of this idea, they all think it. Right? This, is, this is the solution forever. And if you question it, even if you praise it for its time and say, but maybe things are different now, we have to do something a little different, you're a heretic or worse. Okay. Um, you, you, you already see a, a little bit of divergence. As I say, some have this bigger idea. right? So to give you just an example, the EU starts out as a coal and steel community. We're just going to reduce tariffs on coal and two products, important products, coal and steel. But then it becomes GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, which becomes the ECC, the European, um, uh, sorry, the EEC, I wrote ECC, but that's wrong, the European Economic Community, and then it becomes the European Union. Now, was this planned all along? Hard to say, right? Uh, Jean Monnet, a kind of forgotten figure, is the father of the coal and steel community. You can read him as thinking, I'm just trying to lower coal tariffs. Or you could read him as saying, I have a bigger plan, but I can't tell everybody because they're not going to want to go along with it. Right? However, um, you read, there's another figure who you can read. There's no question he knew what he was doing and he meant for this to take over 
everything. And it's a man, some semi-forgotten man named Alexander Kojet. Uh, he, was, he was born in Moscow. Uh, he's famous essentially for two things. One is he gave a seminar, a series of lectures on Hegel in the 1930s in Paris. And listen to this rogues gallery, this murderer's row of intellectuals. And this is a partial list who attended. Uh, Sartre, Foucault, Lacan, Kenyot, Derrida, Merleau-Ponté, Simone de Beauvoir. I mean, some of the people who really did some serious damage to the intellectual life of the West after the dust settled, after World War II, they were all getting it from him, ladies and gentlemen. Not that he's all bad. He had a couple of good people. Not necessarily. Well, Raymond Aron was in the lecture. I consider him a good man. And Leo Strauss was not attending the lectures, but held a fruitful dialogue with Kojev for the rest of his life. Um, so then Kojev, what is he? becomes a bureaucrat uh, in France. His job officially was to implement GATT and, and, and you know, he had a kind of narrow remit on his resume or on his official job description. But in fact, the way he saw himself was, I'm going to integrate Europe along the lines uh, that he sketched out in his lectures. One of his students, uh, a man named Stanley Rosen, who spent some time with him in the 60s, later called him the Mycroft Holmes of France. Who was Mycroft Holmes? <laughs> he was Sherlock's older, smarter brother who, who essentially ran the British government from the Diogenes Club in Whitehall where no one was allowed to speak. Mycroft would just sit there and think about big problems, tell everyone what to do, and the prime minister would say yes. Kojev used to say of himself, it is reported, that um, de Gaulle decides the force to frap, meaning the nuclear program, and relations with the Russians. I, Kojev, decide everything else. <laughs> so a modest man, obviously. <laughs> now, his intellectual uh, fascination was he thought, I'm going to fix Karl Marx, and I'm going to fix Karl Marx by abandoning the stuff that doesn't work, go back to the original in Hegel, in which he found additional problems, and he said, I, Kojev, will fix those. No need to get into it, the detail at the moment. Um, so he tried to moderate Marxism, but at the same time he tolerated the excesses of Stalin, not because he was necessarily for bloodshed, but he thought it was kind of all of a piece. On, for, for instance, he, uh, he appears to agree with the surface of Machiavelli's prints, where Machiavelli never uses the word tyrant. You're either in charge or you're not. There's no distinction, right? Or as Hobbes put it, tyranny equals monarchy disliked. Um, so his point was sort of, the cruelty is not essential to the project, but it's not an essential drawback either. We're not going to abandon it just because Stalin kills a lot of people, right? But there's ways to do it where you don't have to kill a lot of people. Um, he, he liked the example of uh, Salazar, tyrant of Portugal. Um, who became famous finally. Why did Salazar finally become famous? Because J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, which have sold, I don't know, a billion copies each, lived in Portugal and used his, his name as the name of her chief villain, Salazar Slytherin, right? And she thought, well, he's a bad man. Well, Kojev loved the guy, right? Now, so it's important to note here, there's, a, there's something in the philosophic tradition that says, right, tyranny's just going to be around. It's sad. There's nothing you can do about it, unfortunately. Maybe, you know, there's, there are things you can do about it, but you can't eradicate it, right? So, for instance, Bush's second inaugural of 2004, in which he pledged to the eradication or the ending tyranny in our world, yeah, nobody uh, would have thought that was a good idea. Kojev, uh, uh, it's going to be around. So earlier figures had thought, since it's going to be around, maybe we can make it better. We can shave some of the rough <laughs> edges off, but it's still making the best of a bad situation. Kojev kind of says, no, we're going to turn it into a, to borrow a phrase, a positive good. Um, now, this matters because we used to be confident, we, certain stripe of intellectual, that Marxism can't be done in a soft way. This kind of thing, it always has to involve hard oppression. And while that's sad, in a way it's good because hard oppression is unstable and it ends sooner rather than later. 
which means we should actually be scared if Kojep is right and it's possible to do this in a soft way because maybe we, it could last a lot longer than we thought. It's less unstable than a hard tyranny. So I would say Kojep is in a way the intellectual father of soft tyranny. Um, I can skip that. Um, now, we know you heard that phrase soft despotism. He gets it from Tocqueville, right? Tocqueville meant it as a warning. He said, if you don't get your act together, this is where you're headed and it's bad. Kojev, who doesn't really use the phrase, but is completely indifferent to um, liberty, uh, definitely doesn't mean it as a warning. He means it as a recommendation. Um, his phrase, he replaces his, one of his, the ways he changes Hegel by going back to, sorry, changes Marx by going back to Hegel and then changes Hegel by transforming him into Kojev, is he gets rid of worldwide communism and replaces it with his concept of the universal and homogenous state. Um, this comes from, he essentially borrows this from Hegel's famous master-slave dialectic, where there's something in the human soul that always demands recognition, right? And that um, this restlessness, if you're not recognized, or as maybe, um, you know, street gangs would say, if I'm not shown sufficient respect, I can't be, can't be fully human or happy as a person. So it's all about that. And he makes other arguments. Essentially, integration is always good. It reduces friction. It reduces conflict. Um, remember the, the initial point, the fundamental reason the liberal international order came to being in 1945 was we need to reconcile France and Germany because they keep fighting one another. Every time they fight one another, everybody else gets drawn in and we all end up blown to bits and dead. Let's cool it. Um, a temporary problem, as we've seen, because they don't really fight one another anymore, not even in the international banking system. Kojeb's dream worked out extremely well. France and Germany, I apologize to my friend here, uh, they collude at the international level quite effectively in ways that people in 1945 probably thought wasn't possible and would be beyond their wildest dreams. Um, so it sounds like a dystopia. It certainly is that way to me. Um, and yet this idea is powerfully attractive to some people. Not to us, but we can't underestimate its appeal. Um, there's this idea that you know the universal and homogenous state and the march toward it is uniting mankind, is leading to a brotherhood of mankind. People really do believe this. Um, I can remember, for instance, well, before that, I will say the Ode to Joy, right? The fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is set to a poem by Schiller, is the official anthem of the EU. And I read recently that they just passed some kind of EU regulation that says like you can't parody it or mock it or criticize it anymore. So like if you, I don't know, if you want to just give it different lyrics, it's the same, just as a funny YouTube meme, I, I don't know what that means. You go to jail in Brussels now, but it's against the law. Um, the, the, of course, famous words that we're talking about here from the fourth movement from the Schiller poem are aller Menschen werden Bruder, all men are brothers. Become Alan brother. Bloom pointed out. Become, become brothers. Become, okay. Uh, Alan Bloom pointed out in 1987 in the closing of the American mind in the famous chapter on rock music which got him in a lot of trouble basically there are only two kinds of rock songs now they're just you know sex fantasies or Aller mentioned Fair and Bruder and now look <laughs> where we live now I mean I, and I can tell you I, I, I had this experience twice um, uh, working in a corporate environment in New York City first I had to go to work the morning after the Brexit vote people are weeping they're weeping they don't even live in England how does this affect you? There's the sense that the brotherhood is coming apart. This is sad. Regression, <laughs> anti-progress. And uh, the tears flowed a lot more copiously on November 9th. Uh, <laughs> 2016, I don't need to remind you what happened that day. Um, so recognition in the Hegelian sense, 
but with a twist. There's an element of exclusivity to this recognition, right? Which is to say, we who accept the brotherhood of man and the universal homogenous state are superior to you holdouts, the people who don't like it. You're dumb, stupid, or to borrow a phrase, which I wish I had coined, you're deplorable, right? Now, but this points to the little glimmer of hope that I'm gonna to try to give you here. Uh, there's an inherent contradiction in this, right? On the one hand, it's all about the brotherhood of man, the, 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 the knitting together of the world. But on the other hand, that element of exclusivity obviously complicates or contradicts the brotherhood thesis. Um, so when people vote for Brexit, or another example, which I skipped over, but in that march from uh, the cold steel community to the overweening super state we have now in Brussels, that they have now in Brussels, um, to, to give it a veneer of democratic legitimacy, they often had people vote on treaties and things, referendum. People often voted no. And then they would say, hmm, you probably didn't mean that, so we're gonna give you a cooling off period and we're gonna have you vote again. This happens a lot. And, and it's been threatened over Brexit. I think people have learned their lesson. I, I, I'm actually surprised that I'm somewhat heartened by the fact that they didn't do a revote on Brexit. Uh, because they've successfully done that in the past. It must mean that they did the polls and they said, we'll just lose even bigger this time, so let's not do it. Um, right? So bad people are taking us in the wrong direction is one of the ways, it's the way that people who have signed up for this idea uh, see such electoral temper tantrums in their view. Uh, but on the other hand, to deepen the contradiction a bit, you know, they don't want, their, they don't, they don't want what they regard as a retrograde element within their nation to set back progress toward universalism, um, right? You're, you know, that's one of the things you hear about Brexit and the Trump is, well, these are all sort of old people voting for it. And since they're gonna die before we, the young hip die, why should we listen to them? And also these are rubes, these are, you know, red state people or hicks or whatever. And so why should they get to overrule the will of the hip majority, which controls all the money and the instruments of power and we're the future? Um, on the other hand, you'd think if somebody had that level of contempt for you, that they might just say, eh, get out, right? Just go. If you want to leave, leave. But, you know, so we don't want to do Brexit, but maybe we could divide up the country and give you some level of autonomy, and then we don't have to live with you anymore. But they don't want that either, right? Um, they want to force it on their inferiors, in part for their own good. This is in the view of, I think, the elites. It's, um, well, you just haven't achieved full consciousness yet. You don't know what's in your best interests, but we do something that I, I don't have time to get to, but this kind of rule of expertise that all of this implies, right? We have the expertise, you don't. We will force it on you for your own good. But there is a very serious element of self-interest in this as well, which is a sense that any allowance, you let anybody go, you let anybody to stop, you let anybody slow the progress, you're threatening the whole project, right? The whole structure might come down, so you can't allow it. As much as you may hate these people who vote the wrong way and think the wrong things and wear these really ugly red hats with plastic mesh in the back, you can't let them go because they might sink the entire ship. No exceptions. I think this is, is one very powerful explanation why the EU is so insistent on complicating and basically stopping Brexit at all costs. I don't think there's a lot of love for Britain itself, maybe for metropolitan, cosmopolitan London, but for the rest of Britain, I doubt there are many EU or European mandarins who think particularly highly of uh, you know, that slice of England, but they know somehow in their bones, if we let, it, if we let this happen, it threatens the project. And it also, it also threatens the theory because it means there's nothing inevitable. There's no end of history, right? Um, so the opportunity, I would say, 
borrowing from Marx once again, you know, one of the famous Marxist phrases, uh, Marxian phrases, is to heighten the contradiction. So there's a contradiction inherent in there. Well, you know, a lot of times you hear people, and we've heard this today, uh, well, what do we, I, know, I know what the problem is, we've diagnosed it, what do we do? Don't ever ask me what to do, but I have one idea. Um, so Tucker quoted the great economist Herb Stein, anything that can't go on forever won't. I think that's true of this project. I think it's anti-nature. I think it's already bumping up against natural limits. I think it will fail. That's the good news. The bad news, though, is that tyrannies, as we've seen throughout history, they can last a really long time, a frighteningly long time. Some last longer than others. Um, but it's possible that um, a soft tyranny can last longer than a hard tyranny because it, it, it's less uh, provocative, less offensive. It's less in people's faces. People, you know, as the Declaration of Independence says, uh, where evils are sufferable, men are inclined to put up with evils, right? It has to get really bad before you want to rise up and overthrow and, you know, cancel culture and, uh, you know, all of, this, all of the crummy stuff we have to deal with maybe just seems mu so much less bad than being forced <laughs> at the point of a gun that people are willing to put up with it for a long time. Um, the second piece of bad news I have for you is that when things do break, they can break really hard. So some of us would like to see this order come crashing down, or at least end one way or another. I know kind of I do. I can raise my hand. There's a camera there, but I'll cop to this. But we should be careful what we wish for because, you know, you may, you may or may not have a plan for what comes after. And even if you do have a plan for what comes after, you may not be able to implement your plan because once things break, they can go in any given direction. Um, but I will end on the final piece of good news is this, as I said, this will end. And when it does end, rebuilding will offer us a chance to avoid repeating past mistakes. And I think those past mistakes are, are pretty well known to all of us. So let's make sure we uh, remember them, we write them down, we have them in our little journal. And you know, when the chance comes to have another constitutional convention or whatever that may be, uh, to, write the, to write the new laws, let's try to remember what all of these people who led us into the ditch, all the wrong turns they took that got us here. And so we don't do that again. Thank you.